Hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Law, the podcast. I am Rose Inglis, founder of Rose Tinted Law and your host. Rose Tinted Law is a professional development platform for curious and open-minded legal professionals. This podcast is a space to have honest conversations about legal careers with people who are boldly carving out their unique place in our profession. I am so thrilled to introduce my guests to you today. Madison Harrington is an employment lawyer, diversity and inclusion advocate and public speaker. As you will learn from our honest conversation, Maddie is an absolute firecracker and a trailblazer. She is hilarious, ambitious, outspoken, and extremely community-minded. She's involved in many, many different professional associations, and she's always encouraging others to reach their full potential. Maddie does not do anything by halves, nor does she do anything by the book including her legal career. Madison started law at Griffith University and she completed a couple of clerkships but did not get a graduate offer. However, she kept at it and she managed to land herself a place at the Griffith University in-house legal department's inaugural graduate program. While she initially did general corporate work, she gravitated towards employment law. When COVID hit, she was thrilled to be seconded into the employment law team where she was advising the university on its inverted commas cost-saving measures, which was essentially mass redundancies and not renewing employment contracts. Unfortunately, she experienced the same fate as many of her colleagues and found herself without a job in the middle of the pandemic. How she navigated this is nothing short of bold, brave and inspiring. And where she has landed is nothing short of impressive and amazing. I hope you enjoy this honest conversation about Madison's legal career and it helps open your eyes to the limitless possibilities as to where your legal career may take you. Maddie Harrington, welcome to Rose Tinted Law, the podcast. Thank you for having me, Rose. Great to be here. And cheers to you. Full disclaimer, we're recording this on a Sunday afternoon and we're both having a wine. Cheeky Bev, why not? Can you even remember when we first crossed paths or we met? Because I don't. Look, it was several, several years ago and I don't think we ever like formally crossed paths. It was, I think that we were both just one of the few Australians involved in that Law Without Walls program. And obviously being how Eurocentric and American centric it was, Australians were a rare breed. And so we sort of just flocked together and sort of knew who each other were, but there was no obviously Australian focused event. So we never actually got the opportunity to meet or anything. So it was all word of mouth and, oh, did you know Rose? She's down in Melbourne. And yes. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we've long no. been fans or supporters of each other. I think mostly through Definitely. LinkedIn and Instagram. I want to start at the beginning, Maddie, of your career. When did you decide that you wanted to study law? Oh, that's a tricky one, to be honest, because it wasn't a conventional path to wanting to study law. And I think the decision to study law probably came in my final six months of high school. So sort of as those, well, sorry, would have been about, yeah, six to 12 months, last six to 12 months of high school when university applications were being submitted and you sort of had to pick a side and make a choice as to where you wanted to go. And for me, there were two options on the table. It was, I really wanted to do musical theatre, which probably comes as no surprise to you knowing me. 
I'd wanted to do musical theatre and so had auditioned for several courses, I guess you could call it. So here in Melbourne at the Victorian College of the Arts, the local Christchurch equivalent of that, and then tangentially considered whether or not to move to Queensland and do Queensland Conservatorium or, or NIDA. And in the end, law simply won out on the basis that I didn't get into any of those programs because can't dance, can sing and act, but fundamental flaw of being in musical theatre is that you have to have all three. Oh, and I wow. did. So law was the second option. <laughs> Law's your backup. <clears throat> Love that. Law was my backup. And it was something that confused the hell out of everyone that I knew because I wasn't obviously the most academically bright person in existence. I really struggled through high school. I'd been put in what we call back home and said cab English, so cabbage English for cabbage. most of my high schooling life. Yeah, for most of my high schooling life. These days. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I think that might be too NPC. I'm sure it's still called that on the download. But yeah, like it, one of the interesting things about growing up in New Zealand was the amount of sort of takes on British expressions, especially living in Christchurch, that we used in, in common speech. And cab was one of them. Um, <laughs> as incredibly offensive as it likely is in hindsight, yeah. that was what we called it. So and so, you know, bottom stream. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so bottom stream so where did you um, end up? for those Australians playing along at home. So where did you end up studying law and what kind of a law student were you? Did you get your academics together. I was the kind of law student that failed first year law, flunked out entirely. <laughs> I think I spent far too much of my first year of university in Wellington, so my first year away from home when I was 18. I think I spent a little too much time out of the town. Where did you grow up and then what law school did you go to? I grew up in Christchurch in New Zealand. Long story, we'll come back yes. to that. But for all intents and purposes, grew up in Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. It's New Zealand's largest town in the South City in the in the South Island. And whilst I had a university five minutes down the road from home that was one of the best law schools in the country, did I decide to go there? No. Instead, I decided to move halfway across the country up to the capital of Wellington to take my first year of university there. Contrary to Australian universities, all universities, once you get your sort of base quals, shall we call them, university entrances, we call it in New Zealand. So that's sort of X many credits in English, math, science. Mm -hmm. Once you get that, you've got open admission. So University of New Zealand is open admission for the first year. Anyone can go, but then they assess you on a bell curve and only the top sort of 10 to 15% of students, we were told in my year it was a B plus average that you needed to get in order to make it into second year law would actually end up going through and continuing on with their degree. And so... so you failed first year. <laughs> you yeah, just at the tail end of the bell curve. Great stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I probably shouldn't be saying this on the public record. Boss, if you're listening, you didn't hear this. It's um, refreshing. I'm, and that is why people come to this podcast. Love it. Look, I, I'm anything, you know, if not determined. Um, exactly. I moved out of home and moved cities just to prove that I could actually do it. Because obviously I've been overlooked my entire life and said, well, no, you're not really worth anything. What? <laughs> what do you bring to the table? Nothing. You're in dumb English. You're in dumb maths. So how the hell are you going to be any form of successful? And so to be blunt, I sort of took an approach of, okay, that's your thoughts, but F you, I'm going to do things differently and prove you wrong. And so that was part of the reason why I went to law school was just to stick my middle finger up at people and go, you said I could never do it. Well, here I am. I'm doing it. Yes. So now what do you say? I say, go girlfriend. You're amazing. So I thought you went to Griffith. I did go to Griffith. So how did you get there? <laughs> <laughs> I found first year law. <laughs> 
at Griffith are we, are we putting... No. Oh, God, no. No, that was when I put my A into G and actually got my act together. But the precursor to me moving was that I was too proud to reset first year in New Zealand. And so... I didn't want to spend another 10, 20 grand on my student loan because obviously I was living out of home. And so those living expenses also went onto my New Zealand student loan. So for one year of study, I ended up racking up about 10, 15 grand nearly in course fees and living expenses. I didn't want to repeat. There was obviously a significant portion of students that did have to either make a choice of repeating and or taking on a different degree if they didn't pass law in New Zealand. And so After that first year, I really knew that, yeah, being a lawyer was something that I wanted to do. And quite frankly, I will say it for me wasn't necessarily, whilst I may joke about being out on the town too much and socializing, you know, that obviously definitely played a part. I'm not going to lie. But another part was just purely the way in which things were taught. That particular law school, Victoria Uni in Wellington, had a very traditional teaching style of Socratic method. So the American style of seating chart for every course, every tutorial, you sit in the same spot, every lecture, every tutorial, and the lecturer or tutor would have a role in front of them and would randomly select people to answer the questions Wow! um, and mark you off as participating. Yeah. And 8am lectures on a Monday really didn't help as a uni student when you'd been out partying the night before. But after that, I I knew full well that I was actually fascinated by this stuff and I wanted to make a red hot go of it. And I just decided, look, that's it. I'm going to make a leap of faith and I'm going to move to Brisbane. I obviously grew up in Sydney for a period of time and I knew that I didn't really want to go back there. And I decided, look, let's just go somewhere new. Let's try it out. And that's, yeah, I made the leap of faith at the end of my first year of university. So sort of talking January, February before university started, moved over, commenced first year of law at Griffith in Brisbane again. And it was completely different to my first year in New Zealand because in New Zealand, we did intro subjects. So we weren't actually talking about the substantive legal topics of torts, contracts, crim, anything like that at that stage. We were doing probably what I could call from my knowledge of Australian high school students, legal studies. Oh, wow. So talking more broadly about the system of government in the country, how New Zealand's constitution was structured. So all those foundational formational points, yeah. but not actually the legal nitty gritty substance of particular areas of right. law. And then obviously when I came to Queensland, completely different, you know, thrown in the deep end, first year crim contracts, torts, yeah. all of those things. And I just sunk my teeth into it and was just like nerded out, quite frankly, had a little bit of a law nerd moment going, this is fascinating. Oh. And the style of teaching was so much more engaging. Lectures were recorded, so you could go back and check things that you'd missed. I was obviously working full-time at this point, so those lectures being recorded were a godsend for me because it would enable me to... Because obviously when you're in class, you you do miss things that lecturers say. Busy scribbling notes. And then, ah, crap, what did they just say? Yeah, I sometimes listen to it twice. Well, exactly. But in Wellington, for instance, none of the lectures were recorded at all. They had a very clear closed book policy on exams, Socratic method, no recordings. And for me being neurodivergent, that really did not help. And so So when I moved to Griffith, when did you find that out? Yes. I've had a learning disability since I was probably three or four. Oh, wow. Um, So... I have dyspraxia, which is a form of dysfamily. So you've probably heard of dyslexia. So it sort of comes from that same family. 
except in my case, it's not so much words jumping around the page or appearing differently. It's to do with my hand-eye coordination. And so that made things like handwriting really, really difficult. And that was another thing that I would often be marked down on in my exams would be that my handwriting was too illegible for the marker to actually figure out what I was saying. So even if I had put the right thing down, they couldn't work out what I was saying and therefore I'd be marked down. So yeah, I've lived with this my whole life. For those that know me, they know that I'm not the most coordinated person in the world. I'm quite arms and legs and, you know, they do like to flail a lot. (laughs) And that has to do with my dyspraxia. Trying to get support for that when it's really so underrecognized. Probably have to fill out so many forms (laughs) to get help. Trying to get (laughs) You're like, that's the point. Trying to get support at university was for on both sides of the Tasman, trying to get support at university was like trying to get through a stone. I don't know. Like you just couldn't make any headway. No one knew what it was. You could provide all of these psychiatrists and OT reports and they still would just look at it and go, I don't know what that is. What support do you need? (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm telling them being able to type would save all of us a whole lot of trouble. Got there in the end and was able to type out my exams at Griffith at the New Zealand University. I was given extra time, which better than nothing. But when your handwriting is crap, your handwriting is crap. Extra time isn't going to change that. So yeah, just I found moving to Griffith the best thing to ever actually happen to me. It was so much more engaging. The lecturers were seasoned practitioners. I mean, for instance, for our criminal law course, we had the former head of the Crime and Corruption Commission of Queensland, who was a QC. So big, burly, six foot seven man was his first year actually teaching. He'd just sort of come straight from the bar and straight from working as the commissioner to teaching us little mere mortals at law school. I still vividly recall day one, him coming in with, in Queensland, we still have the criminal code. Well, have, uh, I'm not in Queensland anymore, but in Queensland, we have a criminal code. So the statute book is about the size of the Bible. I still vividly recall day one of first year law, criminal law. He comes in and then proceeds to drop the textbook from about, you know, chest height onto the lectern. And that certainly caught everyone's attention. (laughs) Uh, criminal QCs really have a certain presence about them, don't they? They have a very much don't mess with me vibe. And I think that's that's amazing. A it sounds that like that's when it comes exactly to law what school. you needed. <laughs> that's so Well, good. it certainly got me to get my A into G and actually start focusing on my studies. And I mean, the, the added benefit of focusing on my studies was my grades improved. Yeah, that's so good. So I went from flunking my first year of study for various reasons, to ending up graduating at the end of 2018 in the top 10% of my grade. I love that story so much because I'm just a big believer that there's space for everyone in the law and the legal profession. Definitely. And an amazing thing now about studying law and practicing law and being in the industry is that there are so many different types of law schools, so many different just interest groups that you can join, which we're going to talk about. But And there's more and more popping up. And I just, I love that because it's two very different teaching styles, different places, and it just really clicked and came together for you in one. So I actually didn't even know that. And I love that about you. It really did. Another thing to add to the list, Maddie. (laughs) So. I know. And I, I think I surprised everyone by turning it. it around as much as I did. How satisfying. You know, I'd gone it, from being. How satisfying that must have been to it prove was your critics incredible. wrong. <laughs> I think my biggest critic was my own mother and proving her wrong was worth its weight in gold. So good. How did you start your legal career? Did you do seasonal clerkships or do a grad role? 
Yeah, so as is the norm these days, articles is about as dead as a dodo. Being a 2018 grad, there was no such thing. I think, you know, certain firms still trial similar forms of graduate programs. Certainly in Queensland, there were a couple that took you on as like a trainee, for instance. However, I went, I guess, what is now, quote, the traditional path of going through the clerkship process, going through the really hotly contested application process and the interview process and the mingling process and then the further interview process and then the one month trial period, as I like to call it, for law firms mm. to assess whether you're a fit for them yeah, or not. And That um, is a good way to put it, a one month trial period. That's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> I don't think there's any shame in that. I think perhaps my personal view on the process is that I honestly don't think that one month is enough for a firm to properly assess you. And I say that from my own experiences going through that process. So did you get, did I you had get the some com- clerkships? Well, in total, I had applied for probably a good hundred firms. Whoa. Um, and we're talking across the country. We're talking Queensland, New South wow. Wales and Victoria because Queensland is such a small market yep. and they would only take, each firm would probably take five to ten clerks per intake. Most of the firms only did one intake. Some firms did two intakes over the course of sort of de- the December so period. To pragmatic with the way Christmas. that you approached the process. You, you really did. Yeah. And in total, in the end, I only got two clerkships out of it and that was actually spread across the space of two years. So you generally start applying for your clerk in that pre-penultimate year stage, so your second last year of uni, I ended up clerking at one of the big six firms in their employment team in Brisbane, thankfully. Thankfully, I didn't have to go into state, which was a blessing. And interestingly, I didn't quite click with the firm culture or anything like that, but rather that engagement was actually what sparked my passion and my enjoyment for my current practice area now. And then that same period, 12 months later, so the December to January clerkship period, 12 months later, I ended up clerking at, because I continued on, I didn't get an offer out of them, pardon me. And so I got back on that horse, started going through that whole application process again, had to, again, tailor my applications even further this time to go, well, I can't really apply for the firms that I've already applied for, let alone the firms that I've just been rejected from. Firms that had maybe not responded were in that gray area of, hmm, can I approach them again? Whereas obviously the ones that came back with a hard thanks, but no thanks, they were sort of off my list. Wow. And so ended up amazingly getting another clerkship at another big six firm, but had a great clerk cohort, some of whom I'm still friends with to this day, most of whom actually continued on as grads at that firm, which was great for them. And they've excelled through it fantastically, which makes me really happy. But for me, again, it wasn't really right. And in this case, I didn't have the best experience. At least the previous firm, I'd had a really nice experience. The team were really lovely to me. The work was super interesting. In this, this time, I was stuck doing retirement village conveyancing. Oh. And so I don't think I saw my partner once. And when it came to decision making, the HR grad reps relied on the word of the partner. Oh, yeah. And so given that I'd done no work for my partner, because they were always out and about meeting clients and things like that, as you do, they couldn't actually give me any feedback. And it wasn't a practice area that I would probably go into today. No. It certainly wasn't a practice area that I felt that I excelled at. So safe to say I didn't get an offer from that firm either. And so I graduated at the end of 2018 without a grad job lined up. And that was absolutely freaking terrifying. Yes. Oh, wow. Because it blew out 
blew out all of the things that you're told in law school, which is you need to have a job lined up yes. when you graduate. Okay, so this is so it's so interesting. So your first clerkship, you found your area of law. You're like, I love employment law. Mm-hmm. You're like the firm, okay, but you were realis- realistic with yourself. It wasn't the right fit for either of you. Exactly. And you got back on the horse and you applied again. That so that shows such strength of character, Maddie. Like to put yourself through that process yeah. again and like not give up. And then. <laughs> And then the second one, it's exhausting. Like, definitely don't want to do retirement conveyancing. But then you found your people, like you found your little tribe. And you're like, oh, I like you guys. You're amazing. We're going to be friends. Mm-hmm. And with more experience, you see and you realize that sometimes it's you that's not the fit. And it's like the firm can be great. The team can be great. And other people can thrive in that environment, like your peers. Absolutely. They, and the passion shines through. Like if you were killing it at your desk doing those conveyances, the partner would have found out. They would have vouched for you but like that wasn't the case so and that's what shines no. through that's really interesting and, and still you ticked all these boxes you applied and you didn't have a grad job lined up so what did you do next well as i say like it's absolutely terrifying yeah. especially when in the corporate world like in corporate law you insofar as universities tell you and law societies tell you the only way to get a grad job realistically is to go through those clerkship processes mm. and so I came out of university going, crap, I've got none of these things. I gave it my all, but I still haven't actually got anything. What do I do now? I was absolutely stressing. I was applying for the very few firms that did offer open market grad jobs insofar as they didn't do clerkship processes. And I think from memory, there were only maybe two or three firms that fit that category where they didn't have any seasonal clerks come in that they could hire from. And so their grad cohort were solely chosen from open mm. market applicants, such as myself. Mm. And didn't get any of those either. And then again, at this point, I was really, really stressing it going, I have no idea what I've just done. But right now I'm feeling like I've thrown away yeah. five yeah, f- five years worth of uni yeah. to be unemployed. Yeah. And as a Kiwi, don't get Centrelink. So love that for me. Am I going to be out of a house? Am I going to be homeless? You know, all of those thoughts went through my mind going, well, I have to go back to working like a pizza delivery job just to make ends meet, despite having a 50 grand degree sitting on my desk. Yeah. And then... Just by chance one day, I was walking past the notice board at uni and there was an advertisement going for grad roles at the university. And I'm like, hang on a second, what's this? Didn't know this existed. No one ever told me that these things existed. And of all things as well, it was a general graduate program. So it was a graduate program for the university that I was studying at to work in the corporate services team. So encompassing obviously your HR, your IT, your finance, all of those departments within the university were saying, hi, we're looking for graduates, please apply. And I'm thinking to myself, what's the catch here? Like, That's too is, is, for me. Is, <laughs> is legal on this list? And, you know, you read, you're looking through, okay, HR, payroll, finance. Yep, that all makes sense. They're normal. That that checks out. But I doubt they'd be looking for lawyers, right? And then what do you know? Legal services was listed. So I'm like, oh, well, look, I've done 10,000 applications at this point. What's one more? Lob that in going, mm, okay, let's just sit here and wait to not hear from them. You know, another application done. At least I can say that I've done it. And then 
yeah, I think probably two, three weeks later, I got, congratulations, we want to interview you. And again, I think that was probably one of the more intimidating job interviews that I've ever had to do because it was actually a group, it was a an interview with all of the relevant heads of the corporate services department. So we're talking not only who ended up resulting in my boss as in the head of legal, but also the head of finance, the head of HR, so on and so forth, all sitting around a table interrogating you as to why you were a suitable candidate. So in, in some ways, it was actually more intimidating than a seasoned partner grilling you just simply because they weren't from your profession. And so their questions were obviously very different to your traditional legal questions that you get asked. And so I walked out of that interview going, that's it, I'm done. Like, I, I highly doubt that they'll choose me. Why would they choose me? There's nothing really that appealing to me. I got okay grades, I guess, like top 10%. Mm, don't feel that like that's that great. My partner at the time was ducks. So I think oh, wow. you know, I was, yeah. That's what you're comparing uh, so I think yourself I was sort of, to. <laughs> like, I was holding myself off. to a much higher standard yeah. than realistically what most people would hold themselves yeah. to. And then, yeah, to cut a long story short, I ended up getting the job as sort of their inaugural graduate. So not only was it a graduate program, but I was actually their first grad that they had ever actually taken. And so I was working in a team of about uh, seven, eight senior lawyers, all of whom had reached sort of senior, so like top end of senior associate, special counsel level, and then the head of legal reaching partnership level at private practice in private practice, wow. who had then obviously made the jump in house to have kids and focus on that family and work life balance, and then. It was just little old me going, hi. What an incredible experience (laughs) to start your legal career in that environment. You just Mm. have such close access to all that mentorship and oversight of your work. That's amazing. Well, it's quite funny though, because I didn't know what I was getting myself into until I started. And once I started, I was going, I'm doing all right, Mm. but it's just not for me. Mm. And there were certainly times realistically up and so this started January 2019 I sort of felt this there were some things that I liked about the job other things I didn't like about the job realistically up until COVID hit in 2020 Mm. and that was mainly because obviously in-house traditionally speaking a lot of the work is what would classify as corporate commercial so reviewing documents reviewing contracts uh, negotiating over terms and conditions of intellectual property and things like that and I'm like this is all really intellectual and all really fascinating stuff but I'm not smart enough for this this is going way over my head like I'm arguing over the placement of a comma. To me, that doesn't compute. (laughs) And so in amongst all that, though, I still got to do the odd bit of employment work and the odd bit of discrim work. And so that sort of whet my appetite enough to stay engaged and stay there. And I was getting pretty good feedback that time going, yeah, look, we can tell that maybe you're not like suited to being a corporate commercial lawyer, but you're doing all right. You're not doing terribly. You're passing your probation and things like that. And then Ironically, the blessing in disguise was COVID coming along. Yes. And I don't think anyone's ever said that COVID was a blessing. I certainly don't think it is. <laughs> but career-wise, COVID was a blessing for me because it allowed me to actually jump into employment law proper yes. at that point in time and work for HR as their lawyer. Yes. So did you move to employment law within I the still... university first? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so just... when COVID hit, March 2020, we all got sent home. You know, it'll be two weeks and then you'll be back. Yeah, yeah. Two years later, we're still here. Um, (laughs) It's just a new cold. We'll be fine. And then as COVID kept progressing in the southern states where we both are now, so Victoria and New South Wales particularly, kept 
ping-ponging in and out of lockdown for most of 2020, the university started to get really, really jittery. Lots of its contracts were ripped up and cancelled because obviously the borders were shut, so academics couldn't come in, work couldn't come in, IP necessarily was held up and things like that. And through that, there were lots of obviously staffing issues that would arise, including given that universities didn't get any federal funding to sort of support them. There was no federal job keeper provided to the university sector through 2020 and 2021 for COVID. Universities had to make the hard decision of shedding staff. And so I was basically seconded on a full-time basis over to HR, working under the chief people officer of HR and working with their employment relations guru, who I'm still on really good terms with to this day, working pretty much one-on-one one with him and defending every sort of fair work action brought by employees and then also giving advice to the university on how we at that time go about laying off 500 odd staff and that's just me as a grad like it was literally just the two of us you loved the employment law i loved the employment law hated sacking people but loved the employment law (laughs) you did you did you have a similar fate as your colleagues i did have a similar fate one thing that i advised and that we had sort of agreed upon was that the easiest way to cut staffing numbers sadly was not renew fixed-term contracts and as a grad i was on a fixed-term contract yeah Exactly. So it's a little bit of that short-term cost for longer-term savings. Mm. Permanent employees are much more entrenched and a lot harder to get rid of, especially in the university context. They're hard enough to get rid of in a commercial context in business. It's about 10 times harder in academia to get rid of a a long-serving academic or a long-serving staff member. Myself and my other grads were also fixed-termers, and so we fell on our swords and got our marching orders. And so two years into my career, I found myself out of a job. So what did you do next? I took the unconventional approach, which, as you'll be surprised, is not uncommon for me. Uh, Sorry, as you'll be unsurprised here, it was Mm. not uncommon for me. And that was to use LinkedIn. Yes. Use that to my benefit. I love watching this. I was like, she is a fucking woman on a mission. You were just like, just putting it all out there. And it was so bold. I just thought, there's going to be people who are looking at this thinking you're nuts. There's going to be people who are like, she's a fucking amazing. We need her. I got a lot of like messages from people going, interesting. Yeah, so tell us about your LinkedIn usage at that time. These days, for those that don't know, I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn. I wouldn't call myself a LinkedIn influencer or anything like that. I'm not Rose's quality yet or anything like that. Oh, I'm but, far from it. <laughs> but I started using LinkedIn more and more and more, you know, started like showcasing recent employment decisions on there and things like that. Um, because I, I sort of knew that the writing was on the wall. We hadn't officially formed a position yet as to what would yeah. happen to fixed termers, but I was like, I'm not dumb. Yeah. It's an easy cost saving. It's going like, to happen. And we, surely so we don't need the lawyers who are defending all of these unfair dismissal <clears throat> claims and just discrimination. I did raise that argument and got shot down. <laughs> lawyer Schmoyer. That's fine. Well, there's external lawyers for that. Oh. Like, thanks, mate. Appreciate yeah. that. And so, yeah, what I did was I literally just said the God's honest truth, which was, well, hey, guys, this is the situation. You know, as we all know, COVID's been an absolute bitch. Universities are really suffering right now, and I'm one of probably 10,000 staff across the country that now find myself out of a job because of it. Anyone know of anything going in the law for a junior lawyer? Also open to sort of HR, employment relation type roles. If you know of anything, hit me up, basically. And that garnered quite a bit of attention. There were a few thousand likes on that at one point. Wow. Um, And about 
10, 20, 30 comments, either tagging people or saying just commenting for visibility or, or what have you. Don't remember the exact stats now, but literally because of that post, I ended up getting connected with my now boss at work, my partner that I report to. And he just casually slid into my DMs, was like, I see you looking. <laughs> I think I've got something. Let's have a chat. And then this, we are literally talking the week of Christmas at this point, the week of Christmas, 2020, a couple of days before Christmas, he slides into my DMs. We have a chat the following day. It lasts for about an hour, just casually the two of us shooting the breeze. And then 24 hours later, so Christmas Eve Eve, I get an email in my letterbox, in my uh, email inbox, pardon me, going, happy, happy Christmas. Here is your contract, basically. We'd love to have you on board if you'd have us. I was just a bit like, I did not see that coming. And now I've been there for coming on two years in January. tell us what you do now and where you work and what you do. Currently, I'm an associate second-tier lawyer, I guess is probably the way of describing it, between solicitor and senior associate, so mid-level lawyer at a law firm called Gilchrist Connell. They are predominantly an insurance law firm. And so I work in the employment team, which is quite quasi-insurance, quasi-strictly employment law. So a lot of our clients in the employment space are your big national or multinational insurers who send us work from their policyholders and and businesses who hold Mm -hmm. uh, management liability policy insurance with them, which has a carve out for allowing them to make claims when it comes to things like unfair dismissals. So I act for a lot of small and medium businesses, as well as some quite large multinationals at the same time. So I've got quite a spread of clients that I act for, everyone from your mum and dad hardware business out in country Victoria through to your big top tier consulting firms on the New York Stock Exchange and the ASX. So I've got quite a diversity of clients. And so basically as an employment lawyer, I'm either advising them on how to sack employees, (laughs) how to get out of, you know, unfair dismissal claims or general protections claims and or otherwise, you know, advising them on their policies and how to avoid instances of sexual harassment is a big one at the moment, ensuring those policies are up to date. And I love it. In my role, I get to be a litigator as much as a strict advisory side lawyer. And they have the best of both worlds. I like to argue. I was always an argumentative child, according to my mother. So one doesn't have to wonder very much why I ended up liking litigation. Yeah. And yeah, so I've been there going over a little bit of a year and a half now and coming on two years in January. What does success look like to you now and has this changed throughout your career? Success is probably to me finding somewhere where you're comfortable and you're happy that you earn enough realistically because money is an object that we do have to factor in especially in this current climate that you earn enough to be safe and able to support yourself success will vary over time what is currently a definition of success now is going to be different in 10 20 years time I would say that at this point in time of my life I do consider that I am successful and I'm very happy to say that because I went through a lot of crap yeah Um, and honestly there were many dark times where I thought of either throwing in the towel and didn't think I would make it and so to be here today talking with you Rose it just shows to me what that success looks like. Oh, that's so nice. It's really important to like sit in your success as well because we work so hard and we're so like results driven and we can be so busy getting like the next promotion or the next thing or the next whatever. And then sometimes I think we just, we miss out on just being like, oh, I've got right now what I wanted. 
It's really not. And I'll be honest, that's, I'll be honest, it's, it's, it's absolutely a challenge, especially in the current legal market yeah. because I've got recruiters coming at me like piranhas left, right and centre trying to poach me and offer me all these great options and these great firms and new jobs. And you really have to assess what is in your interest. Yeah. Whilst comparatively speaking, am I earning less than maybe some of my colleagues? Perhaps. But do I have a work-life balance? Yes. Am I working till nine o'clock every day? No. Yeah. And so it's those intangible aspects as well that you have to focus on. That's such an important one to think about because that's an aspect of those big jobs and the big salaries is that it comes at a big cost and it's like, what do you want more right now? And prioritizing that balance and that work-life integration is really important. And I think because you have been around the block and you have had the good, bad and the ugly, then you can like really appreciate and value. You kind of have figured out what you value along the way because you've been in the big firms and you haven't felt right. And it also comes from my family history. I had a dad who I now love and adore, obviously, but who throughout my childhood was mostly absent. He was a banking man. He worked at one of the big four banks when we lived in Sydney. And so he'd leave home early in the morning and he wouldn't get home until late. Yeah. And so by that stage, growing up as a child, you wouldn't see him that often. And that had an impact yeah. on me. Yeah. That's something we negotiate in my house with my husband's hours. <laughs> um, he's not like that, but it's like really hard to carve out that space and things have really changed. Society's changed. Workplaces have changed. That's really lovely. Two more quick questions. This is a very leading question. (laughs) Conventional wisdom is that when you're starting out your career, you should go to a law firm first and then go in-house. What would you say to that? Controversial opinion, (laughs) but I disagree. Well, I disagree to an extent. Mm -hmm. Let me caveat it with that because I am a lawyer after Mm -hmm. all and we got to add the asterisks where appropriate. And so it's going to be the right option for some. There are going to be those strict black letter lawyers that went through law school that they've known since day one that they want to be a litigator. That's going to be absolutely perfect for them. But I think also on the flip side, and this is something that we through our sort of Instagram, LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. legal community that we have and that we're involved in, I'm pretty passionate about is going. Don't discount in-house. I think in-house roles are absolutely critical. And in fact, I think you probably learn more in-house in your first couple of years of practice than you do at a big six law firm. I know that to be true. I started my career in-house and the Mm -hmm. amount of autonomy and responsibility. And it's not for everyone because it is sink or swim. Yeah. If you sink or swim, you're going to swim. And we were so Mm -hmm. taught how to swim, which was fantastic. But yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's great. And I just like roll my eyes. I mean, it's good for some people, but if you do choose that way, don't discount it. Like, don't think you've taken the lesser option because it's it's amazing. And, you know, it's right for you and it was right for me. What's the main thing that you need to know in a law firm? business skills, how to relate to your clients. Those are intangible skills that you're not actually taught but expected to pick up Mm. in your years as a law clerk or as a grad or as a junior solicitor. And you're not given that client contact realistically until you're at least a senior solicitor level, if not a senior associate and above level. Whereas in-house, you've got no choice but to deal with your clients Mm. because they operate on such lean budgets and such lean margins that every 
person, every set of hands matters. And so in my case at the university, you would go, okay, so I'm just out getting a coffee right now, let's say. And I could run into one of my clients at the coffee shop on campus and they would go to me, hey Mads, where's that contract at? Or how are we going with this person or that person? And you have to be able to answer them on the fly. You can't just go, "Mm, nah, I'll deal with this once I get back to the office, send me an email. That's so Um, true. Yeah. The thing about being in-house is that it teaches you to be commercial Mm. and assess risks. It is, okay, yes, the risks of this are X, Y, Z, but what is the probability of these risks occurring? One, two percent? All right, well then, in which case, despite there still being that risk, I reckon we gun it anyway Mm. and we do this. And perhaps this is me. I am less conservative than many of my peers. And I particularly noticed that when I was briefly seconded to one of the big four consulting firms as their sole in-house employment lawyer for the Oceania region. So Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, and Papua New Guinea. Having to learn on the fly, obviously, I know I've got a pretty solid grasp at this point of Australian law, but despite being a Kiwi, had very little understanding of New Zealand employment law, which differs greatly from Australia's. And you've won won first year law school over there. They're like, oh, God, I'm the wrong person to ask. (laughs) Oh, I absolutely left that point out. Nobody knew that I'd flunk first year law there. Too too late. (laughs) I'm like mulled wine. I get better with age. (laughs) But then having to learn on the fly Fijian and Papua New Guinean employment law, I was like, where the hell do I even begin here? But again, it came down to that risk basis and going, okay, dealing with these clients, many of whom... Your internal stakeholders are 30, 40 years your senior. You're a young woman in the law at a big conservative consulting firm. How do you carve out a name for yourself in that? And somehow, despite all that adversity stacked against me and naturally being an in-house lawyer where in-house is often seen by the business as a cost center as opposed to an income maker and also a barrier, I still managed to build really solid relationships with some really senior partners and get them out of some many sticky situations Mm. that still keep them coming back to me to this day that's so great it sounds like you got a lot of confidence very early on through your in-house experience that has really set you up for success as you said midpoint in your career it's amazing Mm, absolutely wow i did not know half of what maddie shared with us just then but now i fully understand why i was so attracted to her energy all of these years It takes real grit and determination to continually pick yourself up and keep up the hard work when you've been told no or things do not work out the way you initially planned. And when these doors do seem to be closed, you really have to think outside the box and hustle. When you are looking for a job, regardless of whichever stage of your career you are at, it's so important to just continue to have faith in yourself and keep putting yourself out there. Literally putting it all out there on LinkedIn, like Maddie did, obviously worked for her, but I'm not sure whether I would be so bold. Anyone that knows Maddie will know that she is a highly engaged LGBTIQ advocate. She's proudly queer, and I wanted to ask her how she's gone about navigating her unique place in our traditionally conservative profession, as well as her advice to others who may aspire to follow in her fabulous footsteps. You are going to love her answers. Maddie, you had a really interesting upbringing. Can you please tell us like the long version short? The long story short is I have bounced around pretty much 
the entirety of Australia and New Zealand at this point in time, yep. or at least I should say half of Australia, most of New Zealand, but half of Australia, and have also lived overseas in Hong Kong for a period of time as a child as well. And so on average, I would move between Australia and New Zealand every sort of three to five years throughout my entire childhood, all the way up until high school, thankfully, but I was always bullied at school, which sucked. (laughs) I was either the kid with the Australian accent in New Zealand or the Kiwi accent in Australia. And these days, I think I've got a weird mesh of the two crossed with Queensland, which doesn't help me anything either living in Victoria now. (laughs) I've always been a little bit of an outsider. And so yeah, moved to Christchurch to complete my high schooling when my parents split in 2008. How old were you then when they split? I was about 10 when they split. And so we'd lived for probably two, three years in Sydney whilst my parents had been split, which was proving to be incredibly financially difficult for my mum as a single mum. And so she made the tough decision of dragging us three kids out of school and going, I can't afford to live in Sydney anymore. Got to go back to Christchurch where both her and dad are actually from, Mm. but also where she had that familial support. Her sister lives there, my nana lives there, as well as both of my dad's parents, as they then were, as well. So we sort of had that family support. And despite the separation and subsequent divorce, mum still had my dad's mum to call on and things like that, as well as her side of the family. And so moved back to Christchurch. I absolutely hated it. I couldn't wait to leave. And then in 2011, 2010 and 2011, we obviously had the Christchurch earthquakes, which really gave me such significant depression in hindsight. I personally didn't lose anyone close to me through the earthquakes, thankfully, but it's something that will stay with me through to my dying day is just the feeling that I went through. It also didn't help that the person I was seeing, my my partner at the time, they lost their family home. They lost their grandparents through that at the same time, as well as losing their family home. And then the whole city around you in your formative years was just destroyed. Wow. As a 17, 18 year old at the time, going on 17, 18, you know, there was no night district to go to. There were no proper nightclubs or pubs that you could sneak into underage (laughs) or anything like that. Those normal sort of experiences that you get in cities. In this case, we sort of had really suburban pubs to go off to. You know, there was no formal city anymore. After that, I decided that's it. I I need to leave. That was sort of the final nail in my coffin going, I can't, like, the city isn't recovering. Is your mum still there? And to this day, we're now... And your family's still there? Mum is still there and my family's still there. So I go home relatively frequently. But every time I land, I have a feeling of dread that washes over me. It is not a city I like. It is a city that I was forced to, and it's a city where I spent probably three quarters of my time there depressed and struggling. Wow. I'm so sorry. When did you come out? So you're queer and proud, I would say. Well, to me, it looks like you're queer and proud. I think you're amazing. When did that come about and how did that impact your upbringing? It, and- it was it was a long time coming, a, a really long time coming. From early childhood, I knew that something was different about me. I knew something was wrong. I obviously didn't have the words to describe what that was because... Something other than you know, dyspraxia. The, yeah, yeah, I knew I was different because of that and that sucked. <laughs> yeah. And I knew that I was an outsider because I was either an Aussie or a Kiwi yeah. in the respective countries. And so I'd had all of these pre-existing things piled on top of me that I had to manage and deal with. And then I was struggling with my identity as to who I was and who I liked and what that meant in society and how I was supposed to go about doing anything really. And so 
we're talking, I knew something was off probably from the age of five or six. Oh, wow. When you sort of start having that ability to know your sense of Mm. self. And then having to remain, I guess, technically, as you'd call it, in the closet about that up until I was 23. Wow. So my first year of practice, I came out sort of my first year of practice and have since been thrust into the spotlight since then. Wow. I thought that it had happened before then, like when you were at uni. No, I was not out at uni at all. And was the longer uni life went on, the more I struggled with it and going, I don't know what to do because the law is deeply conservative. Mm. And, you know, sure, we've got gay marriage and things like that, but really do we? Mm. I mean, instances this week, even down here in Victoria, the Victorian bar indicate just how far we have to go. So being queer in a conservative profession is not easy, especially when you're out, you know, you struggle with, will my partners put me forward for this gig with the client or not? Will they selectively give me work so as to not offend the sensibilities of the client or of the firm? Not saying that they have or will, but those are the thoughts that go through your mind. How did you feel about having to share that like with your employer as well? I guess, were you relieved to have been at hopefully more open-minded employer in the end at the university than say a firm or did that really impact or were I you think very so. comfortable in yourself when you made the decision and you're like, okay, you so you stepped into it or how did you go about negotiating those relationships with your profession? Because I think like being a lawyer is such a definer of us so Mm, I just did me yeah I was just me I am what I am and there's nothing I can do about that and certainly not anything else anyone else can do about that so I guess I proceeded to just live my life and do things that I wanted to do as as difficult and as mentally challenging as that can be at times. I was just like, well, look, I'm going to bash through brick walls. We might as well just build the body armor up around you and just keep going. Just keep running and just keep swimming, as Dory says. And how did people take to that? Have they been accepting or have you experienced any of that like prejudice that you kind of anticipated? For the most part, I've had nothing but support and I think it's completely dispelled my notion of law being conservative because the majority of my friends are lawyers or adjacent to law in some way, shape or form. And I think it's also a generational shift. Mm. Society as a whole is much younger than it was 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. The people in the positions of power for the most part are only in their 40s and 50s. And so that mindset shift has done a benefit for society as a whole. Mm. There's still times where you have to sense it, self-censor yourself and go, is this the appropriate place to be talking about this or mm. to be open? But realistically, I've not, thankfully, to at this stage of my career, had any issues with being openly gay. It's just been a non-event. That's um, so good. People may look at me a bit funny and go... Okay. (laughs) But there's many issues that despite us having, say, marriage equality that still exists for LGBT people. And that's something that I am incredibly passionate about as a latecomer to this community, but as someone that can talk the talk and has worked in the fields of politics and government and now law. I use that voice and that power and to some extent that privilege to push for the rights of others, even if they may not personally affect me myself or if I may not necessarily agree with them myself. Yep. How do you do that these days? How do you use that privilege and your voice to advocate for others and support others? Realistically started from day one. Yep. Was just 
signing up to things because when my ex-partner and I broke up, I didn't really have many friends or know many people. We lived a very quiet life. We were effectively married in our 20s. Domestic bliss. Go home, eat dinner, watch TV and go to bed, go to work, rinse and repeat. Didn't need friends at that point. (laughs) And so my way of making friends was, well, I'm going to throw myself out in the deep end. And for someone that was naturally shy once upon a time, didn't ever want to be. Yes, I was deeply insecure and deeply shy. I never wanted to be the center of attention. I find that so hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Uh, It's amazing what sort of being true to yourself can do. And also not giving a fuck as to what other people think. Not giving a fuck what Uh, other people think is so liberating. Once you get... I say that, but deep down you also do care what people think. Why is you said that done? (laughs) I'm not liberated yet, but... (laughs) No, I'm aware. Am I liberated? Not quite. We'll get there. No, but when you do get to that point where you've got more confidence in your own values and your own sense of self, your worldview changes. Everything changes. 100%. And coming out has been a journey of self-discovery in and of itself. Over the last sort of three, four years, I've changed immensely. Not only has my physical appearance changed, but then also my views on Mm. things have changed. Mm. My way of holding myself has changed. The way I put myself out into the world has changed. And all of those changes naturally anyway. I didn't. The way I I present now is very different to, you know. Where you are in your particular Mm. point in life. None of us are going to be what we were 10 years ago. We're constantly evolving. And so what I did was I threw myself out into the legal profession 100% and got myself on boards and committees and things like that and went to networking events and just got to know people. Good for you. What organizations are you involved with now and what do you do? People like to joke that I have no time and they would be right. Um, (laughs) I hold down a a full-time legal job, which being a lawyer is often more than just standard nine to five. Um, I don't remember the last time I properly worked nine to five, but at least it's not nine to one uh, a.m. And then on the side of that, I'm also the head of governance and legal at Out for Australia, which is one of Australia's largest LGBT not-for-profits. And so they focus on sort of the later stages of university life through to sort of your early years in your career. Trying to be that visibility for, you know, you can't be what you can't see and providing that visibility component for others to feel that they can be safe and out at work because there are still token, a crap ton of discriminatory actions that happen in the workforce these days towards LGBT people. Could go on and on and on about this topic because it is something that I am so passionate about, especially as an employment lawyer. The two things intersect and create like this great harmonious medium for me Mm. in which to effectively nerd out in some ways. Mm. And then aside from Out for Australia, I'm also on the Law Institute of Victoria, so the Law Society's Young Lawyers Committee as the co-chair of the Community Issues Committee, Mm -hmm. where, again, we focus on systemic reform facing the legal community and going, what areas need to be addressed and why and how do we go about it? And again, pushing a boulder up a hill, fighting the the hard fight of going, we're dealing with an organisation or organisations or professionals or professions that are resistant to change. They've done things a certain way for 30 years. Why should I change now? Those attitudes sadly prevail in the legal profession. And so talking about things like LGBT issues, race issues, Mm. uh, societal issues, equality issues and trying to get people to see sense in that and go, law is no longer stale, pale and metal. Absolutely not. Law is so much more diverse yeah. than that. We but when you law, look at the top of the top. Law through glasses. 
It's so true. That's it. why I love working with young professionals. And this is the other reason mm-hmm. why I started my own thing. Because I'm just like, let's just cut out all the middlemen <laughs> mm-hmm. and women and just get straight to the heart yeah. of the issues and call it like it is and just give this really refreshing... I've very much been a proponent from my whole life, and I think it's almost a Kiwiism of mm. me, is a call a spade a spade. Likewise. I think there's something about growing up in New Zealand that teaches you to be no bullshit, and it's quite refreshing given how at times politicised mm. the law can be. Mm. Maddie, what is your advice for others who might be inspired to follow in similar footprints to you? I really hate this question because everyone's path is unique. Everyone's journey is theirs. And so when people ask me to give advice, I feel like a total fraud. I go, I know nothing about your journey. Yeah. I know nothing about your story. I don't know what hardships you've faced and have, have had to overcome. All I can say is you do you. Like at the end of the day, law is filled with individuals. It's not filled with firms. It's not filled with companies. It's not filled with organizations. Law is inherently an individual's business. And if you find that you're not fitting in with a particular firm or a particular company, then you're an individual. You need to do what's best for you and put yourself first. Cheers to that, my friend. (laughs) Could not have said it better myself. Thank you so, so, so much for this really honest conversation about your career. I am sure that so many people will love hearing. I hope so. Not (laughs) You know what I think is going to land really well? That you failed first year law and you've managed to have a successful legal career. I think that needs to be the clickbait headline though, Rose. Oh, no way. I failed law and I'm a lawyer. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Thanks for having me, Rose. As always, a pleasure to chat. Oof, what a note to land on. I hope you loved this honest conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. Now, I'm on a little mission here at RTL to encourage legal professionals to be a little kinder and a little bit more compassionate and a little bit more open-minded towards themselves and the wider profession. And there are two things you can do today to help me spread this message. The first thing I kindly ask is that you share this episode with just one person in your network who you think may benefit from Maddie's beautiful advice. The second thing is to like, subscribe and follow me on whichever platform you're listening to this and following my socials, Rose Tinted Law on Instagram and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to speaking to you again soon.